take 1,352. <laughs> I am weary. I have so much I want to say about this next guest, and I keep flubbing it in my enthusiasm. So here I am again to introduce you to the very lovely woman many of you know by her pseudonym, the modern Miss Mason. Leah Bowden is with us today on the podcast. For those of you who don't know Leah, She's the wife to Dave and the mother to four children and a longtime homeschooler. She's got an adult. She's got kids who are still home educating. And she has been thinking about how to make learning alive in her family all these years. She's a podcaster, a writer, and a speaker. She has glowing and beautiful insights to share with you. One of my favorite things about Leah, though, is how practical and warm she is, I think you're going to discover today that this legacy that Charlotte Mason left all of us is something we can modernize and bring into the 21st century, taking advantage of everything we've learned in the last 150 years. Leah's got a brand new book out called Modern Miss Mason. It is published by Tyndale, heads up, that is a Christian publisher, the content of the book, though, is meant to serve any homeschooler who's interested in learning more about the Charlotte Mason way of educating. So let's dive in straight away. Please welcome with me podcaster, writer, Instagrammer, conference speaker, and now author, Leah Bowden. Welcome, Leah. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to get a chance to interview on the eve of your book launch. Amazing. I know. How exciting. We're finally here. It feels like it's been the longest pregnancy ever. <laughs> <laughs> that is so completely true. And I really get yeah. that. Um, I get that feeling completely. And yet here we are. So let's first hear a little bit about you for the audience. What led you to writing a book about Charlotte Mason? Well, I have, so I've been a parent for 20 years and a practitioner, of, a home educator and a practitioner of the of the Charlotte Mason philosophy, whatever that means to, to everybody, um, for almost as many years as that. And as, as soon as we began our homeschooling journey, I discovered this person called Charlotte Mason and um but all the wonderful information was from america which you know because forerunners and all that getting it all going and i had to really work hard to find well not only connections and friendships but information from um you know the british archives and kind of her, her original work and but basically i i i fell hook line and sinker for the philosophy for her her perspective on childhood education and even on motherhood. She wasn't a mother, but she says some really wise things uh, from her observation of mothers around her. So basically, I have been, you know, doing my best to look at this philosophy within the context of my British culture, my, you know, the period of time that I happen to be alive in, and also my individual, wonderfully unique children. And so my philosophy within it has always been, I need to find my freedom in this, and I want to help other people do that. And 
I, you know, I must have been five or six, seven years into this, and I just started to share on Periscope. You remember Periscope, uh, I Julie? Do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it grew from there, and it was interesting. There was a lady um, who from England who came onto the Periscope after I'd been doing it regularly for a while, and she said, she said, I feel like you're like the modern Miss Mason. And I immediately kind of took this phrase and thought, that's really helpful. Not only, and it, it was never a descriptor of myself, but just like you share, we are all Charlotte Masons. And I <laughs> very much hold to that, is that, I, you know, when I first started to create workshops and, and support networks, I kept saying to the, to the mums and the parents, this is a place where your face can fit. So whoever you are, whatever your background and whatever your understanding of this, you get to fit here. And that's not often the case in some, you know, education circles, I think. So so that has grown. And um, I, you know, I was writing articles, blogs, podcasting, and I had the opportunity um, to a few people kept saying, you need to get this down in the book now and, and start to share this perspective with the new generation of home home educators who are coming through. And, um, you know, you get an agent and a publisher was interested in it. And the interesting thing is that the publisher who have written the book with Tyndale, they actually published Charlotte Mason's uh, The Pink series that a yes. lot of people that, yes. uh, yeah. So they were, they loved the fact that it could, you know, kind of work in line with some history and legacy from their perspective as well. And um, yeah, and here we are. I, I mean, you here know, we are. Not every, here we are. It's not everything I would love to say, but it it actually I I believe in the words I've put down. They are from the heart. And I, you know, I was recording the audio book, and at the end, the the engineer said, "Do you still like your book?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yes." I believe every word. I'm just glad to get it out. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so yeah. fabulous! First of all, just imagine listening to Leah. <laughs> that sounds magical. <laughs> I think that makes me want to have the audiobook for about seven hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's an incredible experience to record your own words. I noticed when I was doing my own audiobooks, there'd be like sentences I'd get to, and I'd think, shoot, I'd like to rewrite that one right now. Like you'd notice a double word or something. But yeah. let's circle back for a moment, just in case there are listeners to this show who don't know who Charlotte is. I'm thinking most people do. But just give us a quick portrait of this innovator in education who was British. Tell us yes. when she was alive and what her aims were and what made her so special in the field of education. So, so Charlotte Mason was the revolutionary educator, late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, she really came into teaching because she had no choice. I mean, her, her background, mother was Catholic father was a Quaker the Quaker kind of tradition lots of teachers come through that and so she you know you hear that in the biographies that she kind of maybe didn't have a, a big uh she didn't have lots of career choices and was often by by the age of 17 she was alone anyway but had already started to be a teacher's apprentice very much in her teenage years so her life was in the classroom she was observing children when she was barely out of childhood herself and as she grew older and started to move around the country and she had various posts, she had a lot of people who were kind to her. And uh, she didn't all, she had an illness most of the way through her life. And often she couldn't finish courses or exams and people would just give her a job because they thought she's, you know, they obviously saw something in her. So she was a schoolmistress in, in one school and basically her whole 
career led her to a point where um, she ended up in the north of England in Bradford and she was raising money, um, interestingly, for some kind of missionaries or something. And she did these lectures called home education. And it's not home education as we see homeschooling today. Right. As we say, we say we refer to it as that way in Britain. We say home educators. Um, but she was talking about governesses and, and parents being responsible for their children's education, no matter what that looked like. And she gave these lectures, which were wildly popular. And a publisher then, you know, published them. And obviously this is in a nutshell, isn't it? And yes. <laughs> um, she, <laughs> by the age of around 50, she found herself in the Lake District in Ambleside. Again, Ambleside is a place. It's not just a curriculum. <laughs> and um, she set up something called the House of Education. And this really is where we know her from as, as educators, we hear about these stories. We know about the Lake District and, and her books. And from and this is from the age of 50. So she's a little bit older than me. And she was just starting to wow. be a mover and a shaker. And, and Julie, she, you know, she was a businesswoman. She was an author. She was a poet. She was uh I, I wouldn't, I mean, she was a theologian, but she started to write that yes. way. Um, and she was an educational spokesperson and a re I mean, incredible woman in her in an age where women just weren't being elevated in that way. And she had favor everywhere in education, in, you know, all of the place. And so she, um, over the course of about 30, 35 years, eventually there were six volumes of books that have been published all from her work and life, which she said was for the children's sake. And that was her whole mission was that, so she never married, never had her own children. Her whole life was this observant attentive life of watching what childhood looked like what um the possibilities of knowledge and education and she put those words down which are impacting families all over the world still a hundred years later today which is amazing isn't it it's incredible i think one of the aspects of charlotte's legacy that moved me so deeply when i first encountered her was her sort of democratic vision of education up to the point that she was, you know, alive. A lot of education was reserved for, you can correct me, you're in England, you'll know better than me, but the those with money, those who had leisure, those who were not working in the factories or in the fields. And Charlotte right. really believed that all human beings deserved beauty, deserved living ideas, deserved to be able to name the natural world around them, to have met Shakespeare, to have encountered poetry, right? So she saw the genuine um, value of all human beings, not just some are for work, some are for leisure, some are for education. Would you say that's a, a well-stated? Yeah. I do. And, and interesting that she didn't fully see the fulfillment of that until the end of her life. So she, her work, often people will read her work and they'll hear her talking about nannies and governesses and the nursery and, you know, all this kind of Victorian language. And she did work with the wealthy. She really did have that. She was working with school inspectors and quite wealthy. One of her um, closest kind of colleagues was a, a wealthy Jewish lady, Henrietta Franklin, who was a, a real mover and shaker, set up schools in London. 
So she saw this vision for an ed- a liberal education for all, but right at the end of her life, so that the last book was published after her death, uh, ah. six, Philosophy of Education. Wow. So in the beginning of that book, right in the, I guess in the, I can't remember what the, the second, the introduction part, she talks about how she had discovered um so again another colleague so in in modern in my book in modernist mason i talk about her colleagues and the kinship of her life people around her but another one had made it her mission um to take living books stacks of living books into what they called cottage schools and these were schools in the mining villages um and it was almost like a bit of a trial like take these books this is how we use them. So kind of gave them a bit of instruction on narration and let's see what happens. And what they found is children were finding delight mm. in the stories in this method. And so Charlotte says right at the beginning of, of volume six, maybe it is that the souls of every child can be awakened to knowledge. And so there she is in her 80s, had this vision when she was in her 50s and in her 80s finally said, I've seen it. It's happened. It can happen. And that's why I, another reason why I wanted to write this book, because I want to say to people, you're doing this. We are the legacy. We are see, we are the fulfillment and the continuation of that work. The kids that are on your knees and that you, you're reading to every day and you're cleaning the mud off their boots because you've just been in from a walk. It's all about Charlotte's legacy because we also believe it's for the children's sake. Um, so it's just, I think it's this whole, for me, I'm passionate about keeping it alive, but also keeping it relevant and current and making sure people feel free in that. So fabulous. Uh, my question was going to be, tell me what you think we don't know about Charlotte. And I feel like you just did that without even a prompt. I am fascinated by this idea also that, our legacy or our understanding of our own work sometimes comes to us very late in life because we need to yes. accumulate all that experience and then consolidate it and then generate that yeah. insight. So as a model, particularly to homeschoolers who are in their 30s and 40s who feel like they don't know yet, yeah, you actually don't, right? This is a no. process of learning. Um, I right. loved Charlotte's teachings myself, and she had a huge influence on how I home educated my kids. Uh, about eight years ago, I gave this lecture called Updating Charlotte Mason to the 21st Century because I kept looking at this sort of backward vision. I don't mean backward like wrong, but just a, a sort of focus yeah. on the past, a, a reverence, a romanticizing of the past. And suddenly everyone thought they had to read the exact same books Charlotte had put on her list or that they were limiting themselves to studying, you know, the monarchy of England, and yet they're living in South Carolina, United States, right? And so, yes, right, exactly the question I had. And so I started asking the question, wouldn't Charlotte have used the internet? Wouldn't Charlotte have hung prints? You know, she talks about furnishing the halls of your mind with beautiful artwork, but we get to furnish the halls of our homes. Like we actually have facsimiles that we can use. Can you speak a little bit then to this idea of updating Charlotte Mason of what it means to be a modern Miss Mason? Yeah. And I think there is an element to to some people hearing that. 
although maybe not within your audience, Julie, but for some people hearing that kind of message, there's an uncomfortableness of, but surely the books she suggested are the best books, you know. But you, you actually hear when you read her work and you come up, I mean, Charlotte Mason wanted us to, the, the whole idea of a living education, say, for instance, a living history is to get to know the people. And I very much see see that with her like I've spent many many years journeying with her work and really getting to know what did you mean by that what did you say in that and so when we look at things like the books for instance like you just suggested I think we can get really hung up on those kind of dusty old books that we're trying to find from some archaic site somewhere and people are printing off pdfs I mean you know do whatever you want to do you know we're all about that but there are I I feel like we need to learn the um how to uh, how to um you know learn what a she says this I'm I'm getting my words she says learn to discern what a living book is and she says that in her book so learn to discern for yourself this is what a living book looks like this is how it makes a child feel this is the response we get from it Therefore, who are the modern authors who are doing this today? And so often, you know, in my early days, I was reading stuff off lists and trying things with my kids and they would be like bored out of their brains. (laughs) And I I would be thinking, do I have to finish this? And I realized I was trapping myself in somebody else's system rather than the, the, the foundation of the philosophy. And so I had to get myself out of that as well and think, you know what? I just need to figure out what these books look like and find these authors today. So poets and artists and brilliant literature. I mean, you're such a great, you're you're bringing those books out. I'm often looking at your lists and going, come on, kids, let's read this. There's so many of your your picks on my shelf behind me. But um, it is about educating ourselves. And it's not just about uh, mindlessly following somebody else's pattern. Yes, curriculums help us. Yes, lists help us. Yes, plans help us. But don't follow it like it's some, you know, blindly just doing it because you think somebody else has said that. Educate yourself. Stay alive. I mean, she talks about a whole chapter about this staying intellectually alive. Like we get to learn. We get to continue. I am a student of not only my children and, and education, but of her work and her philosophy. Therefore, it's my responsibility to fully understand this. Right, right in the beginning of the book, you, I talk about this concept called nafas in Syrian cookery. And it's very much about feeling it and owning it and knowing it. And just so this, this Syrian cookery, they talk about, it's not just about the recipe and the food you put in it, but it's they have this word called nafas, which is what the cook brings to the meal. And I think as home educators, sometimes when we when we're just blindly following something rather than immersing ourselves in the reality of it, we can really bring that nafas, that kind of that that feeling of like, I get this, I love this, and I can be free in this. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah, isn't that um it's sort of the spirit of the person, right? Isn't that right. the word in Arabic? And I, when I read That's that, I right. found it really lovely because what we're basically saying is that that can be felt more than it can be seen or measured, right? So this idea of right. what the cook puts in, it's coming from a felt sense of how to make that recipe work or how to bring it to life. And I love, I thought that was just an amazing, amazing example 
Um, as I was looking at your book, you have it divided into these three helpful sections, reframing childhood, reframing education, reframing motherhood. Uh, you start reframing childhood with my all-time favorite Charlotte Mason quote, which is children are born persons. Can you talk about what that means to you? Yeah, this was, um, you know, Charlotte's first principle. And I, I, I'm convinced it was the most, one of the most important ones. And because to me, if somebody says, where do I start with the Charlotte Mason philosophy, or even where do I start with, you know, home education, I'll ask them the question back, what do you believe about children? What do you believe about, um, you know, who are they? And I ask that question straight away, because that's the starting point. And if think your child is a vessel to be filled and spoon fed and just to become a bit a bit of a better version of something you wanted to be then you're not you know that will fail I'm sorry but it will but actually if you see them as the moment you hold them in your arms whether it's from birth or adoption or whatever whoever whatever child you get the privilege of holding they are they are a fully formed human being capable of connecting with the world around them and the world that you build together and that can be in in you know in the tiniest simplest little home in some you know in a in in Africa it could be in in um you know North America it could be all over the <laughs> Europe it can be in in the grandest of estates but they're still a whole person and so the atmosphere you bring them into is what they get to connect with and grow in and establish their personhood in and our responsibility is give them the space to do that and to believe in them and so you know i talk a lot about that belie- believing in childhood and charlotte mason says that she says two things she said parents should trust themselves more and she said parents should trust the child trust the child and i think there's a lot of um mistrust in you know you know you hear this all the time julie parents are constantly asking am i doing enough yes you know that that question to me or is he or she doing enough you know and i think that question in itself really to me is saying well one you can who you're comparing them to and are you actually looking at what they are how they are growing and and Charlotte Mason said the sole end of education is growth. So that's what I look for all the time. How are you growing? How are you growing? How is your child growing? That is what you're looking for all the time. And even the smallest growth is still growth. Yeah. And you give this amazing example of uh, the Manique Society who live in Southern Thailand and how they raise their children. Can you talk about that teaching and learning. I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. So there's a there's a whole book. I'm just looking to my left. I think it's called Raising Human Beings or Raising Humans. So um Raising, and, you have it in here. Raising Children, oh, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures by David Lancey. Is that the one? Yes, that's the one. Yes. Perfect. I've got it next to me here. So they they talk about he, he talks about this this these children. They, there's no word for teaching, right? I'm I'm going to bring it up yes. in my book as well. 
There's no word for teaching. And they just do life alongside the rest of the, the village, the lost rest of the family. And I mean, there's there's lots of talks about, uh, you know, when they get a tool or when they get a knife and all that, which is very cultural and uh, appropriate to that setting. But that whole understanding of that, there isn't this idea of you must teach this thing and you must learn, you know, that there isn't these stages of where all these things should happen. But actually from the overflow of just doing life and the parents belief in the children or the adults belief in the children that of course they will learn of course they will adapt of course they will pick up on the things that are happening around them but that just blew me away I mean I'm sure that's one example uh, from an anthropological point of view of, of a t- you know where this happens and in our western parenting mindset we have so many filters and so many blinkers and so many um, restrict. We restrict our thinking, restrict the way we see a child. And I feel like one way the Charlotte Mason philosophy has helped me is by slowly taking some of these lenses off. Slowly, I'm, I'm learning all the time, but I'm challenging myself about how do I see the child. Uh, yes, of course, I'm raising my children in 21st century Britain. Uh, so there are always going to be things in the way there. But the question is, when I look at them as individuals, you know, do I believe in who they are and how they are meant to connect with the world around them? And it's very freeing. It's kind of risky because it, <laughs> it, it, it really does change the way you do things. Um, but kids are amazing, aren't they? They're just amazing. I mean, no, they whoever totally- they are. They totally are. And this notion that a whole culture wouldn't even have language for teaching and learning when the worldview that I live in is that it's the adult's job to teach because children need right. to learn. That right. really just, it, it it challenges the foundational understanding of what it means to be a parent or an educator. And I love being challenged on that premise, because I think when we fall back into that hierarchy, we stop seeing children as born persons and we start seeing them as born projects. We think of them as something that we're trying to shape and groom into a shape that pleases us. Like you said, either an unexpressed version of ourselves or an ideal somebody has set for us out in the school district or in the culture. So one of the ways that you express how we can reframe childhood is you talk about um, the atmosphere of learning, the discipline of being a learner, and the lifelong love of learning. Let's hone in on atmosphere for a moment because I think sometimes home educators in particular harken back to this nostalgia of the one room schoolhouse or the idea that learning will look romantic. You know, all the kids will sit around the <laughs> fire and they will be looking through these big coffee table style books and teaching themselves. That is not what learning looked like in my house. Yeah. Maybe (laughs) once in a while when they had the flu and couldn't stand up. You took the photograph. (laughs) Exactly. But what can the busy mom of five do in a too small house to create that atmosphere of learning that signals this growth that you're talking about that reassures them that they are in fact witnessing growth and not just a mess? The power of these instruments that Charlotte Mason talked about, atmosphere, discipline, and life, and as you know, we'll hone in on, on atmosphere, is that they can be carried wherever you are and they are adaptable to whoever you are. And that's a big part of my message is that it has to be freeing for you and for each family. 
And the atmosphere, um, when she talked about, I, she talked about the ideas that rule our lives and this being almost um, like things that hang in the air. So, you know, whether you're in the supermarket, the car, in your two room, in your, your little tiny house that you're in, you're in the garden, you, whatever it is, it's what you carry. So, um, so it can be if if you're in a if you're in a, a marriage relationship and you've got other people in the house, it can be the things that you discuss and talk about. It could be the things that you celebrate, the things that you value. Um, it can be formed from what you have around you. You know, I think having books around the house, no matter how many or where you put them, I think those can help um, a, a learning environment because there's a visual element to that. But it really is about what you carry and um, how you communicate with your children and the way you do that. And those things that are almost sometimes unspoken or um, not necessarily things that you can grade or tick off or put on a list, but it is just how the family is. So I often, you know, I think we often hear our um, oldest children who've who've left home and moved away. And one of mine has done that now. And she'll, I hear her talking about, well, in my house, it was like this, or it felt like this, or this is how we did this. And she'll describe certain things. And I you know, kind of hear from the sidelines as a mother, like, ah, that's part of the atmosphere is that she's remembering what it felt like to be around the table or to, you know, have our pull together some kind of a morning gathering in our homeschool morning. So it very much is, I, and I think, um, I talk a lot to people about managing expectations and, um, you know, whose expectations are there, definitely about cutting them in half and kind of minimizing things and simplifying things. Um, but I think really it starts a lot with asking some of the questions of like, what do I, what do we value as a family? What do we talk about? What do we celebrate? Um, and, you know, having a, a, an honest review of those things with the adults in the home, I think really helps understand the atmosphere and how it can impact the children. Did you know it is the 23rd year anniversary of Brave Rider? I started this company in January 2000, which always tickles my fancy because that's why I remember the date. <laughs> it was so auspicious at the time. But it blows my mind to think about the literal hundreds of thousands of families that have been helped around the world by our Brave Writer program. It all started with a product I called the Writer's Jungle. And when I wrote it, I wrote it with this in mind. I was wondering how to help parents be able to teach their kids to write without inciting rebellion and tears. I didn't turn to educator manuals or textbooks or the way teachers teach writing. Instead, I focused my attention on how I had learned to write under my mother's guidance, who happens to be a professional author who's written more than 70 books in her professional career. What I know about writing is that those people who want to be paid for their writing learn in a completely different manner than how we were taught in school. In other words, when you go to a writer's conference, they don't talk to you about grammar and punctuation and spelling. They don't talk to you about formats. Sometimes they'll talk to you about the structure of a genre, like the structure of a novel or the structure of a nonfiction book. But they focus first and foremost 
on one single question, and it's this one. So what have you got to say? (laughs) Why should I care? In other words, the message, the meaning, the voice of the writer is primary. And the strategies that you learn when you are in these professional writing environments are oriented to putting you in touch with the insights you want to express, whether that's a story in the fictional world, or it's a how-to book, or it's a memoir, or it's journalism. In other words, writing when you're a professional has to do with communicating a message first and foremost. We can slap on the format later. We can hire copy editors to ensure that the punctuation is accurate and the spellings are right. But what we can't do, the one thing we can't substitute for all that copy editing is the voice of the writer. There's only one person who can bring forth to the page the insights that are unique to the writer. So as I thought about teaching our kids, I realized that what worked best for me as a child and what was working well with my own five homeschooled kids was to help put them in touch with having something to say. I devised strategies that I thought would work well with kids. You know, this isn't an adult audience. So I understand that children are not yet fluent in the mechanics of writing, spelling, punctuation, grammar, and format. And yet, don't their ideas, their thoughts, and their insights deserve to be preserved and read by an interested audience? That's the foundation of my newly revised program called Growing Brave Writers. It's not available anywhere, but in the Brave Writers store. We will leave you a link in the show notes to make it easy to get there. This program will last you for years. Here's why. It is designed to be processes that you use more than once. So when we talk about keenly observing detail, you will use that whether your child is in a co-op or doing homework from school or trying to describe something beautiful in your house for a homeschool writing assignment. When we talk about free writing, that section of the manual will serve you in good stead all the way through high school. The revision strategies will eliminate pain, tears, and the feeling of failure that attends so much of the revision work that kids are used to in school. I invite you to take a look. We have a sample to download, and I hope that you will give your children the gift of a solid foundation in writing. Growing Brave Writers is the place to begin. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. I know that creating a culture where conversation, reading, and curiosity are present in a regular way, that those are not being suppressed or overlooked, builds that atmosphere. Part of what happens sometimes, and I'm guilty of this and had to outgrow it, uh, part of what happens sometimes is the parent becomes so infatuated with learning. We go through this educational renaissance in our 30s and 40s where we're like, that's what they were trying to teach me in fourth grade. I get it now. I love it. I want to know more. Um, that sometimes we can be guilty of investing too much energy into what 
might feel like a long, tedious lesson to a child. One of Charlotte's biggest contributions to my homeschool was when she talked about short lessons. It was like mind blowing (laughs) to me that I could accomplish in a 10 minute conversation what I had been spending a required hour to accomplish. Can you talk about the power of short lessons and Um, how they've helped you with your family? Like I could talk about them all day. They are (laughs) amazing. And I think some of the myths around this, some of the misunderstanding around short lessons, I've heard people say, that, oh, surely you can't go deep then. You know, they're not very rigorous because they're so short. But Charlotte, um, a couple of reasons why she emphasized keeping things short is because a high value for her in education is the habit of attention. And to be able to, to keep a child's attention, um, you you start with a short amount of time. And as they're brain and intellect develops and their and them as a person, um, they are able then to do a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And so I think sometimes we have this whole like you must finish this many pages of math or you know all that kind of thing. But actually a couple of sums done in with done with joy and done well and they're celebrated is just it is so much more important often than struggling to get through three pages of math and then not remembering any of it. So her emphasis was on very much keeping things short so that knowledge can actually do its work. So not only are you learning to pay attention, but you're able to have those moments of reading, narrating, writing, whatever you're doing to take meaning and that knowledge then belongs to the child. It becomes theirs. Whereas often if we emphasize on the quantity of what happens it, it might look good on your list of things you've achieved that day. It might look good at the end of the term that you finished six books and other people finish one. But actually, ha- what has it done? You know, what is the impact of that? And I think for Charlotte Mason, a big emphasis on her, what she wanted to the ch- uh, for us to understand about children is that they dig for their own knowledge. They need time to do that. Mm. And, um, you know, you just have to take that in short snippets. And and I know even as a continued learner myself, continuous learner, that I know just, you know, not having the, yes, I love to curl up with a book for hours, but actually if I'm wanting to learn, taking those short snippets, reading something and then talking to somebody else about it, it goes much deeper and much further. So, yeah, I think it's great. I'm going to read you the quote that you said in your chapter called Standing Back that shows kind of the fruit of those short lessons. So if you've given your child enough to think about, not so much that they start tuning you out, that they find the lesson tedious, but that it piques their curiosity and interest, this is what you say. For a living education to take root in a child's life, they must be left to ruminate reflect on and retell all they have learned. This position of parent-teacher is countercultural to our usual lecturer-expert style of teaching. What I love about this, ruminate, reflect on, and retell, that's also true for the educator. So when we are constantly focused on quantity, not only are the children suffering from this habit of attention, but the parent never spends any time ruminating, reflecting on, or retelling right. what they see going on with their child. So back That's to right. your point about measuring growth, your child needs an opportunity to experience growth 
and you need an opportunity to stand back and reflect on their growth, what practices of rumination would you recommend both for parent and child? What would that look like? So rumination, I mean, that really is a kind of mulling over. It can look, you know, and and Charlotte talks a lot about this word narration, which is telling back. And uh, the purpose of that is is this almost reminding the brain, this is important and you can stay. Um, And that's what I love about. Wait, this (laughs) is important and you can stay. That's the detail, the fact, the idea, the concept. Wow, I love that. Yeah. You're giving the permission, uh, you can stay, this is important, so I'm going to be able to say this back. And so the I think for children, um, for, especially for young children, um, you know, it's often done orally because they are, if you are a good listener with your children from when they're very little, even when they're chattering away, being able to lean in and listen to them and pay attention, um, not trying to correct or, um, you know, finish their sentences or, but you're actually just listening, them talking about it. Um, sometimes when in that, in their own reflection, reflection, I, I would take notes and just jot things down if I, if I felt that it would be helpful to do that. Um, and also I think children do this naturally sometimes through play. You'll often see them reenacting things um, from uh, from something they've read or experienced or seen. They might be drawing it or playing it. Uh, this can be something that's encouraged or something that's done naturally. And I, I used to get so excited when that happened naturally in my house. Look, it's working. <laughs> and that's all a form of them being able to say, you know, this has meant something and I want it to come out again. And I think the same for, for an adult. If you are whether you're observing your children or or doing some learning yourself and doing the work of staying intellectually alive. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a a big fan of, of some form of journaling and notebooking, whether it's on your iPhone or, or, or in a notebook of just, can you say this again? Can you, you know, which parts of this could you teach somebody else or, or convey to somebody else? Uh, and they're often the things that have, have made a difference in, in your mind and just jotting those things down. Um, there's one podcast that I listen to, and he always says at the end, um, before you move on, if there's any, if there are two things that stood out to you from this podcast, immediately text them to somebody else. And I thought, what a great idea. He's talking about narration here. <laughs> Um, absolutely brilliant learning tool. And so that that ruminating, that kind of allowing space, yes, short lessons, but then leaving room for around that time for those things to, to do their work, just like digestion. Charlotte Mason talked about digestion a lot. In this uh, I think the Brits are obsessed with digestion. That seems to have been a preoccupation in Victorian England. Yeah, it it really was. I know, like <laughs> but that idea of assimilation, everything going to where it needs to go was nice. actually really helpful. Nice, and um, you can see that you know for children, it's like just have a moment to sit in that and think about that, rather than just getting the work done and moving on. Um, so very much about leaving room and giving permission. I love that because you moved so naturally into the reframing education section of your book by talking about narration. Um, you also write about Charlotte's love of living books, which we've discussed a bit. I would love to hear you talk about nature exploration. For me, that was truly the new practice. Like I was already reading books. I was already a student of art. But making nature journaling and nature exploration a regular part of my family's life was transformational on so many levels. And I fully credit that to Charlotte Mason. 
here's what I just want to share to those listening. My family lived in a cramped three-bedroom condo in Southern California with drought-resistant <laughs> shrubs on our cul-de-sac. It was not a haven of beauty out my back door. And yet we found beauty to observe. Ladybugs, the blooming flower, the smell of fresh cut grass, the ability to climb whatever tree was in our neighborhood. We still found a way to explore nature, to notice you know, the crows and the blue jays, even if that's all we had available. Talk to me about what nature has meant to your family and also now make everyone jealous with where you live. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it. It's, I, mean, I live in England, whatever, whatever, you know, people have this image of England, whatever, just stay with that image. That's absolutely fine. But I actually live in a city. Uh, we're just on the edge of a city, but we personally, our house is on a park. So exactly. we uh, our, yeah, yeah. So our house, um, the 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 local park wraps around our home. So all we see are trees, which is a massive privilege. Now, this is not, we've only lived here for uh, four and a half, five years. So previous to that, similar situation to what you just described, really, we lived with a family of six in a three-bedroom, tiny three-bedroomed um, English terraced house, no garden. We had like a little yard out the back and we had to go and hunt for the green spaces. We had to drive to the parks. So we didn't have it. And I would hang bird feeders in our yard and we'd get the occasional sparrow and starling. And we were in awe about those sparrows and starlings. Yes. And I, t- I think I tell the story in the book that there was one I planned. And it was so small, this little yard. But any patch of ground, of la- any patch of kind of soil, I would plant something in it just to see what we could find. Yes. And I did one year I planted this willow, this little willow tree and and uh, I remember my son my, who's who's now an adult but he um spotted he was in awe of some little beetle that he was seeing on this tree and when I went down he kept shouting me come and you know when your kids going mom mom come and see and I learned to, to kind of pick up on those things pretty quickly when they were in the garden especially and he, he was watching the life cycle of a ladybird as we call them here ladybug and um, the whole life cycle was in various places around this tree. And we spent days just, you know, going down there, watching them, taking pictures, drawing them. And this very simple thing became the foundation of science for a quite, you know, for a few weeks in our life. And that's just one little example of our very simple basic life uh, where we just didn't have a lot. I didn't have the car every day. I didn't have the resources and the time and space to be to be going to extravagant hikes. But what we had, I used and, and what we had in our hands, what we had in our, you know, within our reach, I said, okay, this is, you know, let's let's plant a tree here. Let's put a bird feeder up there and let's look and let's see. And um, that was transformational for us. It really was. So then when we were able in our life to be able to move to a bigger house surrounded by a park, we were just so in awe of this and so grateful um, that we could just, you know, go out to the park every day and see all these trees and beauty. And we've got a little river nearby and things like that. But the the emphasis, the Charlotte Charlotte Mason's, you know, kind of two three pronged emphasis really on this idea of being out in nature was was it's a an amazing foundation for science and maths. I mean, you've got scientific discovery and 
a lot of that is rooted in, again, her emphasis on the habit of attention and observation, yes. which you do get outside, get them looking um, and just help them to engage with whatever it is they've got around them. And then the 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 journaling and the note taking is a form of narration, really. Right. It's a form of remembering. And so we we just did it our way, Julie. We just did it our way. We Same. took what we had. We um we saw every season in this little we, we could walk. There was a 10-minute walk and we had this green space uh where people walk their dogs. And we saw that little green space in every single season. We saw the blossom, we saw the nice. um you know, the berries in the autumn, and we would just come home and write about that and and draw pictures about that and the other thing I just I have to say this because I I always say to people don't sweat the sketch I think people get caught up on the art element of nature journaling now uh, I do come from quite a creative family and I you know I have Brene Brown has helped me with my art scars I don't I don't say that I'm not an, art, an artist anymore but I love tracing paper. I love carbon paper. <laughs> I love copying all the things. Like give them the tools. Yes. So that, so that you're not having, I know you you agree with this, but there doesn't need to be tears over nature journaling. No. Uh, never mind maths. So give them the tools to equip them to feel the confidence of get some tracing paper, find a book with birds in, find the one you've seen that day help your child trace the shape of that European Robin and they will feel oh look that's what it looked like I just think we have to again put it in the context of how our children are responding and be kind to them and to yourself a thousand percent gosh I think that is such practical and good advice something I've forgotten I do remember we even did things like putting paper against the different barks of the trees and then um, shading, rubbing. Yes. uh, And, and letting that be nature journaling. Um, I did actually work on drawing with my kids. Uh, We used Mona Brooks book. We also used drawing on the right side of the brain and gave my kids the opportunity to even develop those skills like that. We treat drawing like it's an elective. But when you actually know how to do it, it becomes such a tool and it be it feels yes. really satisfying. So dedicating actual home education time or if your kids are in school after school time to that is a gift. It's it's it doesn't Absolutely. have to be optional. It can yeah. anyone can learn to draw. Uh, I have a, a beautiful illustration that my daughter did when she was four of a bird in flight. And it was just these very wispy like impressions, but it looks like a bird. And so celebrating any attempt at an early stage, putting it on your wall and acknowledging that it expresses something very powerful. So glad that you said that. Oh man, this is I mean, one one of my so one of my sons is is really, I mean, he wants to go into illustration. So he's naturally doing that all the time. But we've, you know, others have have kind of screwed paper up and done all that. So I've just wanted to equip and train slowly teach them and help them feel confident. But it's so life-giving, isn't it? It's wonderful. Oh, it's so wonderful. And we would take a clipboard outside and let them sit in their own little space, and then they would get so absorbed. 
Uh, and I remember yes. in seventh grade, I had a teacher who took us into Malibu Canyon and every day for, I always say it was a month. It was probably a week, right? But it felt really long to me at the time. <laughs> yeah. And we would sit by a space near this creek. Everyone got their own space. And our job was to draw a map of every living thing and then to name it. And years later, wow. when I was reading Charlotte Mason and discovered that this was a practice of her school and that naming yes. created or facilitated relationship and intimacy, That's I thought fine. back to that amazing teacher who did that in a public school. So I felt very motivated Wonderful. to try that with yeah. my kids. I uh, love discovering that and people doing these things in the in the kind of traditional educational setups that actually there are brilliant people yes. doing, you know, practicing these methods. There really are. So let's end with your section called Reframing Motherhood. That's the third section of the book. By the way, if you're listening, that's my favorite section. And I don't want um. to rob the readers <laughs> of the joy of reading it for themselves. But I did want to talk about two of those principles. The first one is play. And the second one is intellectual aliveness. So first, can you talk to me about the role of play in a mother's life? Do you just mean she plays with kids or is there more to this concept of play that is good for adult women in particular? So listeners, you must know that I do talk about Julie in this chapter. <laughs> oh, I I do. Have you missed that bit? I talk about your awesome adulting. <laughs> I know that's in there for sure. But I just had a yeah. moment of like, oh, it's my favorite section because I'm in it. And that is absolutely not the case. It's because we are kindred spirits in this that's sense. It. So, so, so Charlotte Mason said, um, if mothers could only do for themselves what they do for their children, we would have happier yes. households and like mothers go out to play. And her understanding of that, that in her context of her observation of mothers was about, um, you know, you find you're watching your children find great joy in literature and and uh, rest and reading and um, going out and looking at art and going out into nature. But you're frazzled and busy and trying to keep everything going. Just take a moment and maybe do those things for yourself. So her concept of play was very much about seeing yourself as a person and seeing yourself as you see that growing, developing child and allowing, again, we use this word permission. We do this a lot in homes with homeschoolers, don't we? Like, yeah. it's okay, do it. <laughs> um, but this permission to, and she even, so she, I break it down in the books, but she even says, take a nap without the children. She's like, go to sleep. Oh, gosh. I mean, what on, and this again, just to reiterate, she wasn't a mother. She was watching this happen all yeah. around her. So she says, take a nap and don't put, don't have your children with you. Don't go to a gallery on your own. Exactly. I know some people listen thinking, this is way out of, you know, my league right now. And I get that. There were times when I couldn't even possibly think about things like that. But it is even just taking your, seeing how you view yourself is, is key, very much so. Like I am a born person too. This is about my personhood. So in this season of life, what does this look like? So when you've got a breast, when you're breastfeeding and you've got a toddler at your ankles and you're teaching a six-year-old to, to read, it will not look like it does for me you know, in my late forties when I can just say, Hey, I'm going to an art gallery for two hours. But I did those years 
and now I'm living in these years and and they're all wonderful. And so I think that, you know, and so she'll say to, to, to open a book, go sit in a field, um, go sit on a park bench, take your cup of coffee and just go watch a part of the, you know, a field for, for half an hour. But that was her concept of play. And I think it's interesting here as 21st century women, we look at what that looks like because I think we have this, um, we talk about, self-care and me time and that often gets tied up in that and I think it's they're all important but I think I do see them as quite different so for me um you know getting a manicure or my hair done is very different to going to a gallery and or intentionally taking a book to a you know to a to a coffee shop or um or having a you know a, a great conversation in a book club that's a very different um, manner of input into myself and um you know the hair makes me feel great momentary but actually the work of staring at a piece of art for 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 10 minutes it is can linger with me forever so so really that play and and I when I read that I do hear when I hear a lot of when I've heard you talk about this idea of awesome adulting, which, and I think you take it to a, a brilliant level that I am learning from you all the time. Oh. Um, so that's the play bit. Yes. I oh, know. I love that. <laughs> I, I feel like part of the play injunction from Charlotte too is delight, right? So one of, yes, when you yes. talk about self-care versus play, maybe that's the difference, you know, self-care is sort of filling up the tank, but play is more like the overflow. You get to take delight in yeah. something. And for me, it was learning to draw. It was becoming interested in art history. It was adding running to my life. These were my expressions of play. But then I also discovered that the things I wished my kids would do, I was allowed to do. So if I yes. wanted my kids to do nature journaling, I got to have a nature journal. I, I didn't have to live didn't. through their nature journal. If I, I wanted my kids to write beautiful copy work using a calligraphy pen, I got to do that. Sometimes yeah. we're sort of wishing for our children the thing that we actually need for ourselves. And so part of the awesome adulting idea, of course, is to lead the way to live yes. into those visions that you wish your kids would do, do them yourself, give that gift to yourself and see who joins in. And so I anyway, love that. yeah, I just love, I love that whole notion. Do a great job of writing about it. And then I you, think, just oh, go say, ahead. Julie, sorry, just, just one point, which I think is probably quite important is that often um, mothers don't turn to these things until they're at the point of exhaustion Oof. and that they're, they're at the end of themselves. And so a big a, a lesson for me has been and how I help others is that how do you kind of almost have the rhythm of this coming through your life, whether it's a weekly, you know, Julia Cameron in The Artist Way talks about the art, having a date and, and journaling in the morning, morning yes. pages. I, I love that kind of idea of are there practices of play that you can have woven through your days yes. that actually help you not maybe get to that point of utter exhaustion uh, where you need a spa weekend with the girls. I mean, that sounds fun too. But so that, I think that's important, like just gentle rhythms. And that's what I've learned to establish is how do I tie these things into my daily rhythm? I love that. Uh, what I did when I had kids is I used to listen to all my audiobooks while I made dinner. Yes. And so that was like, a finish line. You know, I had been devoted to my children all day. And then at about 4.30, I'm like, okay, go watch public broadcasting. 
Yeah. And I would turn on my little cassette tape and I would listen to a novel, yeah. to Dorothy Gilman stories, to Jane Austen. That's when I got all my Jane Austen read. I did it through audiobooks and it was yeah, so life-giving. Absolutely. And so knowing that was waiting for me helped me when the day was stressful because as you say, it's a form of play. I just yeah. that's it's so valuable. So you talk about the importance of intellectual aliveness for the mother, of course. I think all of us start tapping into that in our 30s and 40s. By the way, don't waste your 40s because that's when you're the smartest. I'm saying that from 61. (laughs) It's the greatest decade for your brain. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a few more years left, just a handful. (laughs) You have have some good consolidating going in your 50s and 60s, but boy, the 40s are just like, you are so sharp. I love it so much. Um, (laughs) But here's what I loved. I loved when you talked about this notion that when we are intellectually alive, what we're doing is we're like setting a context too for the way that our minds, what the mind life can be. I think so often the focus on children is that they're going to achieve something we can measure on their behalf instead of actually modeling the adulthood that we're raising them for. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I, I love this bit too. And I, it's something that's so important to me. Um, the initial, the language comes from Charlotte Mason was inspired by um, a school inspector called Matthew Arnold, also an author and a poet. People may have read his work. And he, it was a huge value and very important for him that all his teachers were regularly being trained and inspired and stimulated. And, and he used this term about staying intellectually alive. And in Charlotte's writing, there's this assumption. She kind of says, well, of course, you know, it doesn't have to even be said. I love that about her. She's like, <laughs> you imagine, I can imagine this face, like, you know, this kind of school mom, like, well, of course you're staying intellectually alive. Um, but of course you're going, you know, you are going to stay intellectually alive. The parent teacher has this responsibility to, but it's not about, you know, be the cleverest and go and do a master's degree. It's about have, again, this d- rhythms and and, and um, this sense of d- daily responsibility of how can I stay awake, the awakeness in loving learning, finding delight in it, um, being inspired by what I'm reading and wanting to share that with others, you know, narration, that kind of stuff. So I think that, um, like you've you've kind of spoken to that when we're homeschooling, we come into this awakening of I, you know, so many people say my education started when I began homeschooling my children. And that and it is, it's so familiar. Maybe it's relearning things like you did in, you know, elementary school, or maybe it's suddenly discovering how to learn and how to gain knowledge for yourself. And so I think it's, I mean, and for me, it, you know learning in this way was so different to my schooling days it was completely a different style of, of ha- gaining knowledge and understanding and so i i was learning to learn again and at the same time wanting to stretch myself with things outside of the schooling and outside of the homeschooling so I started to you know read other books and um read philosophy and and just kind of and, and listen to them or watch interesting documentaries that i'd never quite tapped into before and and that and it's those things that you suddenly feel that stretch 
And then, um, you know, that feeds even more, doesn't it? Because you're feeding the beast of intellect. So he's like, give me more, give me more, give me more. And it's not, for me, it's not a sense of wanting to be a know-it-all and wanting to kind oh, of feel like I've got, it's so rich. And I feel like I I'm like, I love getting older. I mean, I do, I love getting older. I think it's a privilege, it is a gift. But the idea that I get to do this for however long, that I get to every day I could learn something new. I mean, how amazing is that? And and also, I think this is important, that it's not just about you're doing this for the sake of your children. And often we think like that, like I am growing, I am staying intellectually alive, I am playing. So, and, And we have this narrative so that I can pour out into my kids you know we're all in this together yes you're in the family does get impacted by your how you live your life but I get to be a person I get to do this because I believe in myself because I am worthy of having this rich education and this playful delightful life and our kids see that and I think it's fun you know it's wonderful for them to see that and to see their mothers if the parents um I mean my kids see both Dave and I will both have similar values to this getting excited about stuff and sharing things together um it's just I mean I don't know the impact of what that will be eventually on my children but I have to believe that it will be a, a generous one and a, and a, a good one um, oh that leads perfectly to what I wanted to close with, because when I get to the end of your book, I always get tears in my eyes. I love this quote. I long to live in a world where electricians know Shakespeare and add care and conversation to the lives of their colleagues, clients, and work, where paramedics hear Kipling's words when faced with tragedy and know they can keep their head when others all about them are losing theirs. It's exactly what you just said. The richness of education is for the humanizing of each one of us, for being better human beings, being more compassionate, more kind, more well-nourished, right? When we talk about Charlotte's Feast of Ideas, we are nourishing ourselves to be those more complete humans, not just educated, right? No, It's a whole person. It's so important, Julie, isn't it? I just... Because, again, for the children's sake, and our kids won't all go to university. They won't all become academics. They won't all be doing PhDs and masters and writing papers. Our kids will be the electricians, the the nurses, the doctors, the, the people working for the local council. They'll be the teachers in the schools. They'll be the parents at home. They will be all the things that our society needs. And they will be richer because of the years that we get to spend with them and what we get to do together. And I think that endorsing the the the, the future of the child is just as important as the, as the present of whatever you will be, whatever you will be, I am going to be faithfully so into that. And I am going to be an example for you. And that, you know, that has been, I mean, that, that last paragraph is uh, when, at the point of writing was where all my kids were at and what they were all doing or saying they wanted to do. And so my kids read that. So my children read that and they said, that's me. I was like, yeah, that's that's you. And so, you know, I know they're precious. My el- my eldest son is an electrician. And so, um, you know, some of the some of the things have changed. Kids change their minds on stuff, don't they? But he is 
he is an electrician who knows Shakespeare. And um, so um, I'm I'm proud of that and I'm proud of him. Um, and that of is course the you are. And that's right. And what we're saying at that point is that the richness of that liberal education is not just a transactional fulfillment of requirements to get to some career, to get to some paid job. We're actually saying that there is inherent value in the education we're giving our children because it makes them more satisfied, better human beings for the sake of their humanity, not for the sake of a college degree. And I think that's such, such the message that comes through your work and your interpretation of Charlotte. And I think Charlotte would just consider you her best friend if she got to meet you. I think you have done just such a... I mean, you know better than me, but it feels to me like you've done such a faithful job of bringing her up to date and yet retaining the most essential ingredients of her message. And I just wanted to homeschool all over again (laughs) by the time I got to the end. Well, thank you. And thank you for your beautiful endorsement where I know you said that. And uh, as I've said to you, your support means absolutely all the world to me. And I know that we see so in so similar in so many much of this and i um i just appreciate you and your work just before i came on here my husband was sat in the chair next to me with your book uh, Criti- uh, raising critical thinkers out and he's saying i need to read this i need to read julie's book i think we'd get on very well i said i think you would <laughs> oh my gosh that's so lovely i mean the truth of the matter is uh you know everybody has regrets in their lifetime but the one thing i never regret is homeschool And I think part of that is because I discovered Charlotte Mason so early. I got on such a nice path. You know, I started with a kinesthetic program that I don't know if it's still here anymore, but Charlotte was right on its heels. And I read For the Children's Sake by Susan Schaefer Macaulay and then her six volumes. And it was it was life-changing. It really led me to understanding the philosophy of education that I actually had in my heart. And it gave me the courage to follow those ideals. If you are a person who is interested in Charlotte and you need a healthy shortcut or a wonderful guide, absolutely modern Miss Mason is the place to start. And then you can read the six volume series for yourself and really benefit from her beautiful language. We all get such a huge kick out of how she expresses herself and uh, love to use her quotes for copy work, right? They're just the best. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll want to do that with uh, your writing as well with Leah's uh, beautiful language as well. Thank you so much for being here. And I know your work is going to help so many people. How can our audience connect with you, Leah? Um, thank you, Julie, again for having me on. But yeah, type Modern Miss Mason into any search engine and you'll find your way to um, all the places. My website um, is modernmissmason.com or leobone.com. And uh, as we're working hard to get everything you possibly need onto that website. Uh, but most of the time I'm hanging out on Instagram, uh, but I am on the, uh, various the platforms as well. But that is where you will find me connecting with the uh, with the community there. So yeah, come and, come and say hi. Yes, we'll put all of that in the show notes to make it easy for everyone. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. I'm sitting here with a happy, silly smile on my face. 
All I want to do is go to the highways and byways of my neighborhood and scoop up small children and nourish them and nurture them in the Charlotte Mason way. In fact, I'm already scheming how I'm going to take over Lavender's education, my little granddaughter. Leah does such a great job of inviting us into this big, open, expansive vision of learning. If you want to read more of what Leah shares, and there are so many practical tips and activities that you can implement inside her book, I invite you to purchase a copy of Modern Miss Mason. Leah has it on audiobook, in Kindle format, and also in paperback. One of the ways that we signal to publishers that we would like to see more books written by home educators is to purchase the books that are currently available. I love supporting my fellow authors. I feel like we're actually in a renaissance of homeschooling materials, the likes of which we have not seen in over 20 years. So join me in supporting as many of these wonderful authors and educators as you can so that we can continue to see this publishing boon continue. Thanks for joining me today on the Brave Writer Podcast. Natalie is going to read you a five-star review. We always enjoy hearing from you. You are able to participate by sharing topics for the podcast for us to consider. Simply use the link in the show notes to our podcast text messaging service, or you can send them to help at bravewriter.com in an email. Hey, Brave Writer listeners, it's Natalie again with the Brave Writer team, and I've got another five-star review for you. This one comes from Bruna Genovese. Julie is my guru in all things related to homeschooling, parenting, and awesome adulting. As someone who has homeschooled five kids, obtained advanced degrees, run currently her own business, written multiple books, and done her own personal work to evolve as a human, Julie is a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. I love her podcast, especially on days when I am feeling most down and anxious. Her voice and message are uplifting and encouraging. Highly recommend. Thanks, Bruna. Don't forget to submit your five-star review so we can share it on the podcast. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you.